when a person is depressed, it means that the outside is pressing harder than the inside. And the feeling is that they're being squished, that they have no space. And at a certain point, you feel that you have no ability. That's the hopelessness that you just mentioned. And so we have to start really, really, really small to get a wiggle space on the inside of our being, which means that you've got to walk up a hill or you've got to get on a treadmill or you've got to go for a run or you've got to go for a swim. You have to do those things that are going to cause you to breathe deep. That's Guru Singh, and this is a special Guru's Corner edition of the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Greetings, all beings strewn across the multiverse. My name is Rich Roll. I will be your guide today on this podcast, this invisible digital stream of ones and zeros and energy waves spilling, pouring into your unlimited awareness from my small container studio here, nestled into the hills of Malibu Canyon, terrain once occupied by the native Chumash tribe. And before then, well, who knows? Anyway, welcome. Uh, glad to have you because today we are blessed with another mind meld with the vast consciousness known as Guru Singh. Longtime listeners of this show will well recall our initial communions, RRP 267 and 332. And today we pick up where we left off with another confabulation focused on deepening our awareness, uh, cultivating our compassion, furthering our understanding, developing our discernment, embracing our divinity, and ultimately expanding our capacity to do what we are here to do, to love ourselves and love others. For those new to the show, uh, I urge you to please go back and listen to our previous conversations. Again, those are episodes 267 and 332, but because I know not everyone is going to do that, at least uh, not right this minute, let me briefly indulge you with just a small background glimpse of one of my very favorite people. Uh, Guru Singh is a celebrated third-generation Sikh yogi. He is a master spiritual teacher. He is the author of several books and quite the accomplished musician. Uh, for a little context, he was a peer of people like Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and the Grateful Dead back in the day. But for the past 40 years, he has been studying and teaching kundalini yoga. He has been lecturing across the world and along the way, mentoring many illuminary, including Fortune 500 CEOs, athletes, artists, and even people like Tony Robbins. Uh, if you find yourself in LA, I highly suggest you make a point of attending one of his classes at Yoga West. It is quite, I assure you, it is quite unlike any yoga class you have ever attended. Uh, it's more like a rock concert sermon, more of that than down dog. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. 
technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll 
or code RICHROLL25. Guru Singh. As I've mentioned before, I've become quite close with Guru Singh over the last couple of years. I consider him a very good friend, uh, a spiritual mentor, almost like a family member at this point. And one of the many, many things that I really appreciate about him, who he is and what he does, is that he's super accessible, he's personable, and his copious wisdom, which derives from Eastern mysticism, is so wonderfully fused with Western pragmatism making it understandable and, and most importantly, practical, implementable into your own life. So this is the first installment of what we're calling Guru Corner. It's sort of a spiritual spin on my athletic-focused Coach's Corner episodes with Chris Houth. And it's something I anticipate will be a regular feature of this show going forward. Uh, it's a conversation about many things. It's about compassion, uh, confronting psychic and emotional pain. It's about dealing with violence, uh, about setting healthy boundaries, discernment, spiritual growth, and really love in these challenging modern times. Uh, as a little final note before we get into it, we recorded this back in mid-February, and uh, because I had a big stash of interviews to get through, it took a bit to get this one published. So a few of the more topical events that we discuss are, are not quite as current as they were on the date of this conversation, uh, but I will say this, the wisdom imparted is timeless. All right, let's do it. doing a yoga retreat and like a meditation retreat in Miami. So um, she had a small group of people, but uh, super meaningful for those who attended. Yes. She's got like a good crowd in Miami. She really likes going there. So cool. it was good. Yeah. Cool. How That's are you doing? Great. Yeah. Really good. I'm really feeling strong and positive about this idea. Mm-hmm. Because I think we can put some things into a different perspective for people. Yeah, me too. The first official installment of Guru Corner. Guru Corner. <laughs> <laughs> and we still have to uh, have a meeting of the minds and get together and map out this course. Yes, There's a lot do. of demand out there. And yes. I know I've been difficult <laughs> to pin down and to track oh, you down. Too? Spread, I've spread been told down. that myself. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we can uh, like, you know, start working on an outline and piece that together. Cause I think people would really enjoy it. And there's certainly a lot of people who would like to hear from us. Well, when I listened to you and, and Srimati, your wife, uh, speaking and the very the differences in your approach to work, right? Mm -hmm. And you talked about how you liked to do you know one thing, but you also like to have it planned out in chunks. I thought, wow, that's so good for what I want to achieve. Uh -huh. Also, because you know I'll have to learn that from you. Mm. In uh, because when you have your engine pointing all of its explosive energy in one direction, the car moves forward. Mm -hmm. And when you have the engine, you know, you know, the old style car, right? That yeah, had yeah, bad yeah. valves and uh -huh. all. Um, not a lot know, of forward momentum. Not, not all your energy yeah. was going forward. Yeah, it's difficult um, as life continues to expand to figure out where to apportion that focus and that energy. And you know, I'm in a fortunate position, as I'm sure, as I know you are yourself, of 
having a lot of cool opportunities and things that you could do and trying to find, like, I need to do, I do one thing at a time, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, well, today I'm doing this. So, whereas Julie sort of working on a lot of things at the same time, and that's just not how I function. So it's about like carving out the mental space to just say, okay, today I'm focusing on how we're gonna map this thing out and we'll, we'll do that. And there's another thing that I learned at that, at that lecture, I was really glad I went. I appreciate you guys coming. And, uh, and that was that your, your uh, professional background. I didn't know that you had that behind you as a- Oh, as a lawyer, you mean? Yeah. Oh yeah, I was a lawyer for almost 20 years. Yeah. Well, you ran out of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it was, it was a classic example of being stuck in the wrong profession for a very long period of time, thinking originally like, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. And, you know, I have a, I've come to understand a very high pain threshold, <laughs> you know, which I, you know, put to good use in the athletic endeavors that you I also probably I put it to good use in those 20 years. Yeah. But I think, I think, I'm thinking I'm suffering in this career, but I'm just thinking, well, this is what men of my situation are supposed to do, presuming that everyone else is experiencing the same level of suffering that I am and just thinking, well, suck it up. Right. And and progressively, you know, dying on the inside until that, it became so overwhelming. And like, I can go out and do all these crazy Ironmans and, and suffer and be in pain, um, but the pain that I experienced as a result of being in that career, a career that was at odds with, I think the person that I truly am, uh, created much more suffering than anything I've experienced <laughs> in yeah, my athletic know, pursuits. You know, the Buddha talked about uh, the levels of pain. There's physical pain, emotional pain, <clears throat> psychological pain, and existential pain. Mm -hmm. And what you were talking about is in the Iron Man is a lot of physical exertion, a lot of physical pain. But the Buddha was talking about how it's the existential pain, which is the most severe. Mm -hmm. And then next to that is the psychological pain. Then next to that is the emotional pain. And so as you go into what appears to be the more identifiable pain, the ability to withstand it becomes greater. And as a matter of fact, in a career that is not taking you where you wanna go, that's very psycho-emotional, right? And mm -hmm. very psychological and emotional. And it's like crazy making. And the kids today that are experiencing that because of the their, you know, school doesn't tell them what they're gonna be. It doesn't tell them what they're gonna do. It just sort of feeds them with things that they obviously need to know, some of which they need to know. Right. Uh, and then they are lost as to, you know, where is this pain coming from? And a lot of times that's why they exert pain on themselves. Uh, in some of the extreme ways in which that happens. Yeah, well, we saw a pretty demonstrable example of that this past week with yeah. the, a, well, yet another. I yeah. think the last time we sat down, we discussed school shootings, and here we are again in the wake of, you know, another cataclysmic event. Yeah, and you know, the the bad statistic that I just heard was that since the first of the year, there've been over thirty mm -hmm. mass shootings, a lot of which we never heard about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and we don't hear about the daily gun violence that mm -hmm. is, you know, taking people's lives one by one or two by two. And here we are again in the wake of it with the sort of onslaught of thoughts and prayers and very little political will to do anything about it, but I think the 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 biggest difference with this occasion is seeing the kids in front of 
television cameras, speaking up for the very first time and really taking charge and taking control of the narrative in a way that we haven't seen before. And that's uplifting and encouraging. But also it's, it's, uh, it's heart-wrenching because they shouldn't have to be the ones who are leading the charge in creating this change that we need. When you were talking about your earlier career withholding you from that which you felt was your destiny or your passion, you think about the careers of politicians. Their passion is to be reelected. Their side job is to govern. There's nothing more passionate than a politician on the stump, campaigning, on the phone, asking for contribution. That's where their passion is employed. When they go to governing, they have to honor those who have donated in that passion. And that's common to, you know, to all of the politicians. The only one that is passionate about life in this instance are the kids whose lives are being taken. And so I am in full support of radical and disruptive solutions. And that's what it's going to take because what we have here is the collision of a lot of different marketplaces. We have the marketplace of arms and weapons. We've got the marketplace of politicians. We've got the marketplace of those who are in charge of politicians, their largest donors. And then we've got the marketplace of our children trying to grow up in this world. And it's the collision of these marketplaces that is uh, so gut-wrenching because mm -hmm. you see the inequity and the and the lack of balance. And so I've got some really strong ideas on solution ever since you said, you know, that you thought it would be really good to cover topicals, topical um, events. You know, I'm thinking that this is a good platform for us to actually discuss and chew up the ideas. Not every idea is going to be great, but mm -hmm. every idea is going to stimulate. Well, let's get into those ideas. I mean, the the you know, it's top of mind for somebody who lives in the practical world are subjects like uh, you know, gun control, um, reform legislatively in terms of access to guns, and also campaign finance reform, so that entities like the NRA don't hold so much sway over our, our leaders. Um, but I'm interested in the more uh, ethereal, spiritual solutions that you're probably contemplating. And they're not just pray harder. <laughs> mm -hmm. The kids really debunked that one when they said prayers don't stop bullets. Yeah. So the, the first thing that comes to mind is I did a comparative within my own within my own thoughts of what did it take to create the TSA? We all remember, not everyone on, uh, on this podcast, but you and I both remember airports before the TSA. Mm -hmm. And we know that they have put billions and billions of dollars into airport security. And yet the number of people a year that die 
from airplane crashes or from terrorist attacks on airplanes that cause airplanes to crash is minuscule in comparison to the number of people that die from gun deaths. But there was something that created a passion and a reason to produce the TSA. And the TSA in its, what, since 2001, so we've got 17 years of evolution, have gone through many different stages of technology. And so my first attitude is that we've got these polarized attitudes between those who want to control the weapons in the world and those who want to have total freedom to own as many weapons. So you've got this polarization. A spiritual attitude or a higher awareness attitude is about when you have polarization, find a third position that serves both. And if you find a third position that serves both, then you create what's called an elevated paradox. So what would be an example of that in this context? Spend billions of dollars on gun technology and then open it up to brainstorming as to what can cause a gun to not be usable in the hands of a maniac. So what would that look like? Right. I'm confused. Well, number one, they have um, on our phones, they have face recognition. Mm -hmm. They also have fingerprint recognition. And they have the ability to put fingerprint recognition on a gun today. So number one, if you're the registered owner of that weapon, just like if you're the registered owner of that phone, you would be the only person that could turn that phone on. You would be the only person that could turn that gun on. Secondly, every gun would need a SIM card, which could be uh, with a GPS, could be located. Hmm? There would be an ability to turn off guns that got anywhere near schools, except for the guns that were owned by police forces. Hmm? Mm -hmm. Now, that's not going to say that the millions of guns that have already been produced are all going to be rendered inoperative. And so there's going to have to be a rather significant long game. But in the short game, because many of these people that have done these really brutal and heinous crimes in the last few years, they've all bought their guns. They've had, there's record of them buying their guns just a month or two before. And so what we're looking at here is that no gun would be able to be used by that person that didn't own it, wasn't registered to it. It wouldn't be able to be used in certain areas. This would cost billions and it would have to be run by a government. And of course, that's going to fly in the face of those people who are still living back in 1870 that are thinking that, you know, that having a few rifles is going to be making you safe and that you could raise a militia army, you mm -hmm. know, to take over the government. That is just not even clearly possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I see that as technological uh, aspects of gun control mm -hmm. that could work in concert with 
you know, more kind of uh, elementary forms of gun control, like basically doing what they do in places like Japan, where you have to literally, you know, jump through hoops and take tests and get screened, you know, be evaluated for your mental health, et cetera, mm -hmm. in order to purchase it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, to be able to have um, uh, technological checks and balances on the use of that once it's purchased, I think, you know, would be amazing. But I think more fundamentally, we don't have the political will to even begin to implement any of that as long as campaign finance stands as it currently does. But what if, and I agree with you 100%, and not but, and what if a campaign was started first on social media that no student would attend school until something was seriously mm -hmm. in place? I am strongly in favor of basically a, a walkout. Yeah, there's been some uh, there's been some chatter about that. I mm -hmm. think that there is a planned walkout, but it's only for like an hour or something yeah. like that. No, it's no, like, this is a walkout yeah, until it's like, fixed. Right, exactly. Like nobody goes to school, the teachers or the students until, until right. And every student in a public school brings, I think it's like five hundred dollars a day some really significant number of, of capital into the school system for every day that the student attends the school, the school system gets that much money for the, for the student. And so this would not only be a demonstration uh, publicly, but this would be a demonstration financially that no student will attend school. And I'll tell you, the will right now is not with the politicians. They're still saying it's too soon. Well, the same things that they always say, so forget that. The will is now with the students. The students believe that if they're the ones that are on the front lines of this disaster, that they're the ones that need to take passionate responses to the solution. Mm -hmm. And that is, so I see this as a many tiered event. Number one, students refuse to go to school until some significant first step is taken. And that first step has to be with a second, third, fourth, 10th, 20th step already planned out and stated. And the moment politicians miss a step, students are out of school again. And so we hold their feet to the fire and we say, this is a, just like with TSA, they said, okay, this is gonna take us two or three or four or five years to get into place. And I mean, look at the first installments of TSA were ridiculous. I mean, they had a few desks moved around and a couple of metal protectors and crazy lines. And the inconvenience that that caused was severe. So the immediate situation is that you put fences on the backside of the street. In other words, not on the part of the street that's right next to the school, but you put the fences uh, across the street from every school and you literally create a zone in which nothing can get through. That would be step number one. And what we're talking about is, yes, we're talking about a war zone, malls the same way. You can't get into a mall unless you pass through metal detectors would be an important thing. Um, what else? Uh, airports, they do it already. Schools, they do it. But we have to get really serious and we have to realize that just like pain... There's a physical level, and that's what's building fences and creating technology and guns. There's an emotional level, 
And that means, like you were saying in Japan, that people have to go through you know, flaming hoops to try to get a gun. And then there's the psychological level in which you know, there's a test and all of that. And then there's the existential level. And the existential level is that we really go into the school system because all of these people that are doing these, these uh, heinous crimes are, you know, like they're just absurdly dissatisfied with whatever is in their lives. And they feel that being able to express themselves violently is the only thing they have left. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com 
and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There's access to guns, of course. There's the lack of political will to, uh, you know, basically combat that. Um, but issues like, all right, how, how are we screening people to get in and out of schools? And there's recent talk about putting drones above schools. Like all of these things are, are, are band-aids on the fundamental mm -hmm. problem in the same way, you know, taking a pill that, you know, basically deals with the symptoms of a disease, but doesn't get right. at the cause of it. So to kind of, um, dive into that cause, which I think is more your sweet spot. Um, you know, what is it that is causing such an, a profound level of, of anger and resentment and dissatisfaction and alienation with so many people that leads to these kinds of tragedies where the only path forward for that individual is to go out in this seeming blaze of glory and moment of you know, temporary infamy. We educate the brain in the head. We don't educate the brain in the heart. And medical science knows there's three main neurological areas. And we don't educate the brain in the gut. The brain in the gut is about our connection, our connection to nutrition and our connection to the relationships that are nurturing. Our relationship in our, our brain in the heart is about our relationships, how we relate, how we give and how we receive. The brain and the head is about how we analyze. All we educate in schools is the brain and the head. We do a little bit about the brain in the gut. You know, we talk about these food categories, but they're all antiquated. And so what we really need to start doing here is we need to overhaul the educational system because the kids that are growing up out of this educational system are absolutely ignorant of the things that you and I, your lifestyle, my lifestyle, know are essential. The educational system taught you how to be a lawyer. Being a lawyer demonstrated how unhappy you were. Hmm? The educational system needs to teach us how to be vegan, how to be nutritionally sound. If you're not going to be vegan, at least give some other options. Here's a, a paleo diet, right? Here's a, a vegan diet. Here's a vegetarian diet. Here's a regular diet. And the idea is that we actually teach kids how to be happy, how to be healthy, and how to be a whole person, as well as how to do math, how to do science, how to do the language of their origin, and some other languages so they can speak to more people mm -hmm. around the world. 
Yeah, it's almost as if uh, you know those traditional categories need to be put secondary mm-hmm. to fundamentally connecting with the self, understanding you you as a human being exactly and, you know what your heart is telling you and and how to really channel whatever it is inside of you to bring expression to that and to do it in a way that um, leads to fulfillment and self-esteem and all these other qualities that will make you a productive and essentially uh, functional happy human being and a teacher needs to have a pay that is in equilibrium, is in balance with the standard of living. So a teacher needs to be able to afford everything that is taking place within the standard of living of that decade, within the standard of living of that country. Mm -hmm. Because these are the people that are with our most precious gift, our children, from eight o'clock in the morning until three or four in the afternoon, every single weekday. And for them to be struggling in their life means that they're not putting as much into the life of our child because they're having to find ways of moonlighting. And so we've got to equalize the way in which our economics and our economic structure works. Take money, invested into security, take money, invested into education. The things that, of course, those who feel like they're conservative, they're not conservative. They're just anal. Hmm? They're not conserving anything. They're definitely not conserving our children. And so what we need to do is we need to put money into those things. Our teachers and the way in which we teach them through the subjects that we give in the class and then bring in people like you and pay you, you know, a significant amount to show kids how they can become an elite athlete and be an elite athlete in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, and what that means because you have so much information behind the persona of what it's meant in your life to continue to do what you do at the age that you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, as you as you kind of recount that, I'm thinking, well, what what would it take for something like that to happen? You know, is this just a utopian pipe dream? And I think there's, Can't be. there's I don't think so either. Um, but I think <clears throat> there are plenty of parents out there who feel that way, and in a sort of sense of despondency, we're seeing this rise in homeschooling because people are not willing to drop their precious, most precious asset, their mm-hmm. child, mm-hmm. off at a school that's vibrating at a level that they don't deem to be uplifting for, for that child. And it's interesting to see how these new models of education are starting to pop up with little groups here and there who are informally uh, trying to teach their kids in a, in a new and different way. Industrializing a nation which was really taking place heavily at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, um, changed the way in which schools were run. The the major um, donors to colleges were the large industrial uh, foundations, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation. 
and they were, you know, donating large grants into the educational system uh, at a level of college. You know, the state schools that were that were training mm-hmm. teachers, and they made an error in judgment. They said because way back in the centuries past, we were educating you know, philosophers and thinkers and writers. And they said, you know, we don't need philosophers anymore. What we need are the workers to be able to work in the factories because now we're in an industrial age. We're in a scientific age. We're in all of these uh, changing times. And so they made a mistake and they said, well, let's take out the classics. So kids didn't learn the etymology of language. Let's take out the arts because we don't need to create artists. Let's take out music. And they kept taking out the things that are really wholesome. The one thing that they've left in are all the things that keep you capable of being just an assembly line worker or production worker. And if you really excelled, then you would perhaps achieve something greater than that. This is a long-term project. But we're going to have to say that in the next century that we're going to start altering it into a more positive direction, just like what was taking place over the last century, because that Mm -hmm. didn't happen overnight. They didn't remove all of those essentials overnight. And now we have to start putting them back in so that kids can really understand what education is. And we have to think about the child that we're educating so that the child can get excited and inspired about what's happening in school. Right. I mean, can you imagine a child coming home from school saying, oh my God, it was so mind-blowing. We learned this today. We learned that today. And, and, you know, excited about it. And part of me thinks like, is that even possible? Is a child wired to even have that kind of response? But I, I think it's possible, but I think it does require a pretty revolutionary overhauling of the system so that kids go to a place where they learn how to feel good about themselves. They learn how to connect with what's important to them and they're supported in pursuing a learning process that that has them completely engaged, that has them learning how to team build and lead and work cooperatively for the greater good of the collective and like all of these ideals Mm. that I think have just been whitewashed away Mm. from our system altogether. Um, and I'd like to see, you know, for, you know, for the sake of my own children, more of that in our system. And it's hard to watch and sit by and see what's going on right now, knowing that there is a better way. And, and I think when you see these shootings or you see the level of disaffectation um, in people in their 20s and their 30s, uh, it's heartbreaking because I know that so much of that is so deeply connected with how they were reared and raised in an educational system that did not serve them. If you saw that young girl that was speaking in front of the cameras with the very, very, very short hair, Mm -hmm. one of the things that she informed us in her communication was that everybody knew this child. Everybody knew this young man who caused this horrible disaster. Everybody kind of was on the place of expecting this could happen. Maybe not exactly in detail, but they weren't surprised that it turned out to be him. And I thought, okay, now that is what we, you and I and your wife and my wife, we have the skills 
to go into a school system, and there's people all over the world that have the skills to go into a school system and say, okay, now we're going to start talking about how we function as a group and how we are able to see those amongst the group that are dropping away from the capacity to be joyful and inspired. And there is technology, I don't mean, you know, sci- um, external technology, there is internal technology that we can use to get children to do just what you said, to come home from school. Can you imagine what I learned today? And have that be a group project. Our son went to a school that they were always doing things as groups. When they would take a really big test, they would do it as a group because they said, when you go out into the world after school, you have to do everything as a group. You put your heads together. And so they would talk about what's the best answer to this question on the test. And they would come to a conclusion Mm -hmm. amongst themselves. You would go through a school subject and you wouldn't have six different really important subjects in a, in a school day, you would have two so that you could focus like you you could focus on what it is that you're trying to achieve. And so what it means is it, the system is broken. They say if you take an educator and a, and a doctor and a, and a whatever, um, an architect, whoever it is, and you take them from 200 years ago and drop them in today's world, the only person that knows their job is an educator. And that's because nothing has changed in education and yet everything has changed in the world. Mm -hmm. And so what we have to do is we have to go into schools and have subjects about group consciousness, subjects about spotting unhappiness. How about spotting unhappiness? How about not just going, okay, that person is a jerk and that person could be dangerous, but having the will and the wherewithal to be able to go into the fact that, okay, that person is really not feeling well, Let's gather around them. Just like a 12-step program, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or just like group therapy. Yes. Mm-hmm. And have group therapy start at the age of six, seven, eight, nine, ten, where kids are very much schooled in what it's mean what it means to be therapeutic in numbers and how you can heal the the psyche of those that are feeling left out. Because nobody that's happy causes this kind of of course Tragedy. not. Yeah, of course not. And all the wa- warning signs were there. I mean, the kid got expelled, I think. And, you know, there was- Several times. <laughs> so, there's a bizarre sort of lack of, of um, attention to the suffering that this person was obviously experiencing. And looking at it like that, you know, they always say this person was evil. Let's just take that evil title and label away from it and say, this person did an evil thing because nobody spotted three years ago or four years ago that this person was going off at a tangent. And that tangent, as we know, gets worse and worse and worse the further away from the source that it Mm -hmm. travels. And so over the course of three or four years, that tangent is now a total clinical insanity. And I think that speaks to a larger issue, which is the disassociation that we experience now as a result of of living in the modern world where we're just, we're fractured. We're in Los Angeles, there's 20 million people here, but we don't really know our neighbors. We're not living the way we did for millennia in Mm, tribes where mm -hmm. you intimately knew 
what everyone was up to. And if someone started to go sideways, there was a group consensus or consciousness <laughs> around that to prevent that from getting out of control. Yeah. But we don't operate, we're not, we're not really wired to operate the way that we currently live. And so it's easy for somebody like that, even when there's an awareness that that person is experiencing some suffering and is potentially a liability or a risk, there's not really uh, an infrastructure set up in the traditional tribal sense to attenuate that. And we are wired, but we haven't activated the wiring. We are wired to feel each other and it's through the gut brain it's through the neurology in the gut that we can feel each other. So if we had a class in kindergarten and first grade and second grade and then all the way through school, how to feel each other's feelings, you know, a class in empathy or compassion, whatever you wanted to call it, we would be developing these other skills. A class that works on the heart brain, there's a great book your your listeners and viewers can can relate to it's called m-braining and it means multiple multiple brains and it's medical science that's on the bleeding edge more than the cutting edge and probably a bad metaphor to use mm -hmm. in today's conversation because of what we're talking about but the idea is that if you educate all of the person that they will then choose the right foods they will have harmony through the heart in their relationships, and they can still do the analytics. All we're teaching now is to do the analytics. So they walk up to each other, they've got no connection, so they analyze each other. And so the only way those, we don't know our neighbors and we're 20 million people in a community and we're seven and a half billion people on earth, the reason we don't know each other is because we're constantly analyzing each other. And the analysis is two-dimensional. Like me, not like me. Be meaning, is that Binary. person like me or is that person not like I am or not as I am? And right or wrong, is that person right or is that person wrong? We need that dimmer switch that is, well, they're not as right as I am, but they're not completely wrong. So let me try to see what they're thinking. This is what we need. And we need to insert that into the system. Humans aren't wired for that. We wanna make, we wanna make everything clean cut. Everything falls into a specific category that I recognize so I can since organize all of these ideas and yep. make sense of the world around And me. since when? Since when, I don't know, since when, since ever? No, just since science. Mm. Five, about 500 years. Science, 500 years ago, 450, said, we're gonna conquer nature. Remember the quote, right? And obviously we're being <laughs> conquered by nature because we'll be wiped out. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but the fact is, is that uh, we only became that two-dimensional and that exacting and that needing to be, you know, da, 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 da. When science took over, when industry took over, when we were an agricultural, you know, the rows didn't have to be like that. And what has happened to, I mean, let's face it, what's happened in agriculture, because you plant all wheat, all rice, it's destroying the habitat. Mm -hmm. It was the people that just sort of threw the veggies out and they grew all different things in all different places, a little plot of this and a little plot of that. That was natural. And that allowed wildlife to flourish. Now we've got bugs that we don't want, so we put out insecticides, and we do all these things that are feeding that exactness of the brain. 
but we are not wired for exactness. We are striving for exactness. We're wired for random creativity, connected to logic so that it doesn't run off the rails. I mean, our head has to be here and our mm-hmm. gut has to be here. But in between the two, we have to have some room to move. I think a tangential idea that's related to that notion that that uh, you know we as human beings will conquer nature is the idea that the intellect is capable of all problem solving and understanding. Mm. And that gets at what you said before, which is cutting Mm-mm-mm. off the, the gut brain, cutting mm. off uh, that natural inclination to have empathy and to understand and to feel. Not only is that not encouraged, it's actively discouraged. Mm. All the emphasis is of course on developing your mental acuity um, while yeah. forsaking that gut intelligence um, in a very active way to say, don't worry about whatever your body is telling you. Like you need to sit in that chair and you need to learn this stuff. Mm-hmm. And after years and years of, of that war of attrition, it just locks down. Mm-hmm. And when it percolates up, the instinct or the kind of natural reaction is to like not pay attention to it or to try to override it by virtue of the thinking mind. And what about a person that has no skill <clears throat> in achieving that level of intellect and therefore starts realizing as they sit further and further and further back in classroom till they go out the back door that everything that the world has to offer has nothing to offer them and they start to isolate emotionally then they start to isolate psychologically and once a person starts to isolate psychologically they start to have, you know, repeating thoughts and they start to have attitudes. And then they, t- then they bring that two-dimensional brain into play and they start seeing everybody else, especially those that are doing well in the world, as the enemy. And all of a sudden you've got a potential mass killer on the loose. Mm-hmm. And you give that person the ability to easily purchase a significant weapon and it's just gonna happen. Mm -hmm. It's just gonna happen. And so teachers need to be paid the kind of salaries so that you have a highly trained person in front of the classroom able to scan the class and pick out those who are falling behind, and not just grade them poorly and walk away, but hold back the grade from grading them poorly and get them help. Because if a child doesn't have parentage, that's going to, because the parent generation went through the same thing, and they're saying to the child, I have the same problem, it's not good for you, you might as well just leave. All of a sudden, this child is in this world, very complex world, seeing people succeed, seeing his schoolmates succeed, and all of a sudden, they feel tremendous anger towards everything. And for we've got to pay teachers as much as we pay doctors, you know? And we also have to have as much desire 
to really make children incredible as we do to really make athletes incredible. Mm -hmm. Or technology incredible. Or technology yeah, incredible. Or anything else. And I think without some fundamental, perhaps revolutionary changes in this system, it's, it's only going to accelerate and the problem will be exacerbated specifically or especially given that um, with the advent of rapidly uh, developing technologies, the job, the, you know, the job market's gonna shrink. All these driving jobs Correct. are gonna go away. Like the, there's gonna be people that build robots and people that sort of attend to robots or are told what to do by robots. Correct. You know, it's like, what else is left? Well, there's the artist, there's, what can you do as a human being in your unique, um, you know, construction that you can provide the world with that's of value that cannot be done by an artificial intelligence. And what is that world going to look like? And I feel like we're kind of talking about things we talked about last time, but I think, you know, unless we address these problems with that shrinking um, job market, it's gonna get worse. I have a solution that comes through yoga for a part of this issue. And that would be the idea of breathing. When a, when a child, when a human being, but when a child is in school and they're finding something very difficult, their breathing pattern will change. So the difficulty that they're experiencing psychologically or mentally and emotionally has an effect upon their breathing pattern. Mm -hmm. So if we would have every few minutes in school, okay, let's check our breath, let's, let's do five minutes of breath work, we could bring everybody back to a harmonious condition. So there's one particular issue. It doesn't Not, cost anything. doesn't cost anything. <laughs> Another thing is, as you and I both know, because of our dietary... Um, uh, habit is that sugar, you know, is the wrong thing to have in a child's system anytime they're needing to focus their brain. Because sugar in the brain is like alcohol and driving. The two don't go together. And so educating a child about diet and then getting in there and regulating the kind of food that is available. Hmm? Obviously, we have to go back layers and layers and layers and layers of civilization in order to get this. And you say, we need, you know, do we need a revolution? And actually, we need some evolution because a revolution is trying to get something done very quickly. And an evolution realizes that it's not going to get done quickly, but we have to do it over time. And so what I would do is I would say, okay, for people like you and I and, and others in the world, that have social media, um, you know, audiences, et cetera. Um, what can we achieve in six months? And what can we achieve in a year's time? And what can we achieve in two, five, 10, 20, 35, 50 years, and really start creating metrics that we can become attentive to so that we're not just saying, okay, I lived and I had an impact, but no, let's be like uh, Cecil Rhodes. He created De Beers, right? The diamond mm -hmm. company that owns the majority of the diamond stocks in the world and controls the prices of diamonds because 
the diamonds are so plentiful that they would be quite inexpensive if they allowed all of them to go onto right, the marketplace. Right. And Cecil Rhodes, for which they named, they unfortunately renamed Rhodesia, and then they've now changed it back. But Cecil Rhodes created what was called the Rhodes Scholars. And the Rhodes Scholars were, if you showed a particular attitude and, 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 and uh, aptitude to be able to have a mindset, you were given free college, but it was a free college through a certain uh, perspective to create world leadership. Mm -hmm. We need to do the same thing in the reverse because they were creating the world leaders, the kind that we have today that are not working out. What we need to do is realize that one man can do that. A few people through linking through social media can do a lot. And so I think that based on this one disaster in the Florida school, that we could say, okay, like 9-11, because there was a lot of terrorist attacks before 9-11, but 9-11 changed things. Mm -hmm. That we can say, okay, this is the new 9-11. And there are going to be TSA-style checkpoints. There's going to be physical security. There's going to be emotional awareness. There's going to be psychological or mental attention and then there is going to be a metric that we can work with so that we can get an existential sense. And this is what we're going to be able to achieve in the first year. And this is what we're going to strive to achieve in the second, third, fifth, and really start working like, and it's people like you and your wife and my wife and I and others, that if we start putting our, our efforts together, we can make a plan. Because everything started with a plan. You know, airplanes started with a plan. Of course. And I think there's some really simple things that that you could begin to implement that lack that um, the resistance. Sweet. You know, we can we can get That's rid of important. the soda machines in the, you know in the schools. We could start looking at what school lunch looks like and make incremental improvements there. I just had um, Bob Roth on the podcast who runs David Lynch's yeah. David Lynch Foundation. And he is having incredible success with teaching meditation in schools yes. to underprivileged youths. And, and was, we were kind of discussed, he was sharing uh, the, the incredible impact that this very simple thing is having on these young people's lives. And it's simple things like that that I think can begin to shift the emotional, mental, and existential aspects of this. Uh, you know, whether or not we need fences and, and you know, metal detectors at schools and drones, like, all of that frightens me a little bit. It does bit. me too. You know, it's like, that's not really the direction I want to go. I want to go the opposite direction and start with the heart and grow from there. Start I, with what we're putting in our minds and our hearts and our bodies. And and again, that's a long-term thing, but I, I find those solutions to be immediately possible and implementable today. I am in 100% agreement with you about the fences and metal detectors and drones being offensive. <clears throat> but I look at it as being a tiered approach. I say that until we get people re-educated on a mass level, which I think is probably 15 to 20 years away, you know, I think we have to get a generation through the system first. There are some short-term needs. Just like Okay, you're uh, an extreme athlete 
and you know that there are certain things that you should do in the way in which you run, the way in which you place your feet. And there are other things that if you do, you will start getting injured knees and injured hips. But you had to reprogram your body in order to know these things. One of the things they say is that the invention of the sports shoe also invented the sports in, sports mm-hmm. injury. Yes. And it's because of these big cushioned heels that everybody was running incorrectly. And you know, running on the balls of your feet is the way the, the body was meant to run, especially over longer distances. And so the re-education of the system is important. But what happens is that there's sports injuries and those sports injuries will require some kind of, you know, invasive procedure to try to correct. And I think that we're looking at the same thing here, and that is that the system is operating incorrectly and it's going to have systemic injuries, which school shootings are an obvious sign of systemic injuries, and that we need to have like a a leg brace or a leg cast or things like, or a a band that's right, tight. It's a temporary Correct. solution until we fix the systemic problem. Yes. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Well, we're talking about social changes. We're talking about changes on the macro level. Um, But let's shift gears and talk about change within on the individual level. One of the things that you brought up in a recent daily email was this idea of uh, tuning the self, attuning yourself Mm. to the universe. So can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? Because I think 
all real change starts with the individual, right? We can't change the system or society or culture or the planet unless we first, you know, sort of direct that mirror upon ourselves. What we have in our physical bodies is not just the physical mechanisms that get us through the day that have evolved over millions of years, such as the ability to walk across the land, to find food, to then locate a good place and a safe place to sleep and to have shelter over our head, and then to find some social interaction. What we are doing is that we are just externalizing many of the things that are on the inside of us in doing that. What we actually have on the inside of us is we have a sensitivity. Anthropologists understand that longer ago than about 10,000 years, human beings, and I think I might have touched on this on a previous podcast, but human beings had another actual sense called the botanical sense. And the botanical sense was an innate, an inherent ability to be in the presence of a plant and know if it was nutritional, medicinal, or pathological. It was a knowing, just like you know that the sky is blue, you know that the leaf is green Mm. because you're using your eyes. And you've been told, okay, that's what that is. So this sense was lost when we stopped needing it. And we stopped needing it when we started cultivating our food, which was about 10,000 years ago. There's a lot of other senses inside of us that we are not using. And one of those senses is that we can attune ourselves to our environment. You know, speaking about tuning to the universe is a big subject but we can attune ourselves to the environment. We can get to know that which is immediately around us. And this is something that a child learns before they learn to talk. They learn to associate themselves with their environment and they're actually watching skin tone, facial expressions, and and the the light in the eye, the glint in the eye. They're watching in the shape of of the mouth. They're watching all of these things to know how to work things out before they've learned to talk. Mm -hmm. Reconstituting those skills is something that deep meditation and breath meditations give us. And uh, transcendental meditation, which you just mentioned a moment ago, is one of the ways in which that can happen. one One of the needs of the brain is that it always wants to be in control, so it's always quite noisy. But if you can just insert a constant tone and a constant few syllables, which is what the transcendental meditation mantras are all about, and you can do it for 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon or evening, which is what the prescription for TM is about, what you do is you start to create a correlation between you and the way in which your brain works. Breath meditations work the same way. And so all of a sudden, this other sense, besides the five senses that we use and besides the botanical sense, 
begins to arise up, which is the sense that the pre-verbal child had. And that was a sense that the yogis back, you know, thousands of years called V-A-Y-U-S, the Vayus. And what you have is you've got this area from the diaphragm up to the top of the neck, the bottom of the chin. And this is called the prana vayu. And it operates like a big sort of, um, like in these microphones, or if these were ribbon microphones, Mm -hmm. it would be a surface that was vibrating according to the vibrations that were coming out of our voice. And so this area in our body actually vibrates. And when you get it really sensitive, you can be around other people and you can feel their feelings. Just like you can look at a person and you can see them, you can turn this sense on, like you could listen and hear them. You can turn this sense on and you can feel them. Then there's another value. The two main values are what's called the prana value, which is surrounding the heart brain, and the apana value, which is from the diaphragm down to the pelvic bowl. It's called the the apana value. And so you can literally train these things, just like you train your ears in music, just like you train your eyes as an artist to have what's called eye-hand coordination. You can train these things. We could go into school systems and we could train the children to use this sense to be able to feel another person's feelings. And if you felt that they were you know, having sincere problems, then you could get them help because it would be a harmonizing thing. Tuning into the universe, I mean, obviously those of us that have been doing this for decades not only can feel another person's feelings, but we can also feel the way in which the cosmos is aligning. We can feel what's happening in a Mercury retrograde. We can feel what is happening with the redshift of the universe. We can feel all these things. And so we can compensate for it. And there are ways in which you can compensate for um, Mercury in retrograde, which is a which is a disassembly of communication, right? So you you know it's like when you're running, and if you're running on a slanted surface that's slanted to the side, you can compensate for that. I know our daughter, as you know, is a runner, mm-hmm. and um, she won a race in an indoor track that was one of those bank, heavily banked tracks that some athletes won't run in. And so part of her team said that they wouldn't run it. And it was, uh, and and she thought, well, why? And they said, I don't like the bank track. She won the race, jammed her hip because of the bank track and realized that that's why they had said they weren't going to run it. Compensating for those conditions is part of being tuned in. Mm-hmm. compensating for a person's agony when you're talking to them so that you don't inflame their agony, but you actually calm it down mm-hmm. like Bose headphones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's almost a way of, of talking about expanding your capacity for empathy. Mm-hmm. And right. compassion. Right. And I think that gets to something else that you talked about in another recent um, one of your emails, which is, the power of the the power of listening versus our inclination to always be interpreting. I guess that's another way of saying like being present and being in awareness versus being in analysis. If you're listening to a person, psychologists have been studying this, but yogis and 
mystics and spiritualists have been knowing it for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. But when you're listening to someone, are you listening to them or are you thinking about what you're going to say in response to yeah, them? Yeah, I was like, this podcast is a perfect like sort yeah, of micro. microcosm of this because <laughs> my whole thing is most people say like, how do you do the pie? How do you always know what to ask? And it's like, because I'm I'm doing my very best to be present and to yes. listen. Of course, I prepare and I'm like, okay, these are the things I kind of want to yes. talk about, but I try to show up and then- forget about all that and just be as present as possible. But of course, like I'm, I, and I am, and I'm tuned in and I'm listening. And if, and if you are listening, yeah. if you're truly listening, you should never be searching for the next question Correct. because your natural curiosity will lead you to the natural next sort of evolution of the conversation. But I still, ca- I, of course I catch myself, okay, like we're kind of winding up on this subject. Like what's the next thing I'm going to talk? Well, that's so I am part doing of, that. Well, that's you know? the exchange of brains. So. You go to the head brain and that's beautiful. Well, let me just say that is actually one of the reasons why having these sessions with you is so joyous because you do what yogis call sunya, S-U-N-I-A. Sunya means listening so deeply that you're actually understanding rather than interpreting what's being spoken. I try. I don't. Know I tell I you. That, I but... tell you. You're doing it better than anybody <laughs> I've ever been interviewed <laughs> by. And what happens then is that because you understand what's being spoken, it naturally leads to the next question. Mm-hmm. And but you brought it up. Listening, you said. And yes, the number one component in any relationship, whether it's a, an intimate partnership, a business partnership, just an acquaintance, is do you actually hear each other? Do you actually listen to each other? And below the, to- below the meaning and the definition of the words that are being used, there's a tone that's always being used. And the tones, the different tones, have different meanings. When the voice rises at the end of a word, it means something different than if a voice falls off at the end of a word. When, a, when you're speaking in the tone or in the key of F, it means something different than you're, if you're speaking in the tone in the key of G. It means something different if you're speaking in the key of E. So knowing the tones and also the subtle tones within the tones, they actually have technology now that there's this, uh, um, there's this item out called a, an amp coil. Mm-hmm. And the amp coil listens to your voice and it gives you some feedback based on the tones and undertones and overtones of what's included in your voice because your voice is a product of your entire body. Being able to have that not in an external device, but being able to have that same capacity within yourself, I personally listen to the words with about 20% or 30% of my listening. I'm listening to the tones with another 30, 40, 50% of my listening because I want to hear. The tones will tell me how the person feels. The words will tell me what a person thinks. And so I'm very much interested in not only how they think, but how they feel. So 
And if I'm not listening to them, but I'm thinking about what I'm going to say in response, and I'm not giving a shit about what they feel Mm -hmm. or what they think, I'm just trying to make myself be an important component in the moment. Right. And how is somebody sitting? What are their eyes doing? Mm -hmm. What is their... What is their what is their energy, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's as important. Those nonverbal cues are far more illuminating that what than what comes out of most people's mouths. And I think we're in an epidemic of of unlistening or whatever the opposite of listening is. I think most people um, don't listen, don't know how to listen, don't appreciate the value of listening. Most conversations are a, a tennis match of one-upmanship and and waiting for your turn to then express your uh, your opinion on something without any openness or willingness to bend or yield in any regard based upon the information or the energy that somebody else is directing towards you. And I think this is a super important fundamental core um, illness, disease, for lack disease. of a better word, that is leading to a lot of these problems that we're seeing. They're external manifestations of our inability to uh, to be able to be present for the experiences that we're having with others. The, the, and when, the capacity to be able to see that other individual and say, that guy's going sideways, that guy's going left. I'm telling you, I can feel it, I can see it, I can hear it. Let's do something about right. it. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely correct because the idea that we are working with each other, even if we're not connected to each other, but we're working with each other. We're working with the people in Florida. We're working with the people in Russia. I don't mean that we're actually engaged with them, but everything that happens on this planet is affecting every single one of us. And so when we get to the place where we're teaching what you were just talking about, the ability for you to know when a person is going sideways, and you teach at a very soft level in first grade. Teach it at a very soft level in second. And when you reach you know, high school, it's a really clear skill set so that everybody in the school is aware of everybody else in the school. It's a transparency that is gonna be awkward at first, but it's a transparency that's gonna be required because otherwise kids get into isolation Mm-hmm. And in isolation, they become dangerous. And you know, beyond that, we end up in ideological silos that you know translate into television news programs where six people in little boxes are all shouting their dogmatic opinions on <laughs> on everything. And in this, and it, you know, it's it's supposed to be this rubric of conversation, but you know, it's it's very much not that. And what? and there's no. Um, there's no effort or inclination to listen to anyone else or to really um, engage in any kind of uh, productive dialogue that could perhaps lead to the greater good of all. You said something 10 or so minutes ago about um, vending machines. You said, you know, getting practical. What uh, we'll be able to do over the next three years because it's happening quite, as you and I both know, it's happening quite rapidly, is we will be able to get people more nutritionally aware. And the first thing that we'll need to, I mean, we're not gonna get people to go vegan, you know, very rapidly, but we can start getting people aware of sugar. So what if we were to take 
one or two things on nutrition on the nutritional level, which is physical, one or two things on the emotional level, and one or two things on the mental level. And we'd say, okay, these are the things that we would like to get viral on a, on a global basis. And we couldn't be too, you know, aggressive. We'd have to be reasonable. But that we want to get to have a really good conversation around sugar and violence, right? We want to have a really good conversation about uh, chemistry in food and violence, so that we can get some documentation, just like we got documentation on tobacco and cancer. And we, want, we wanted to take, uh, uh, get some really good documentation about the correlation between listening and connecting. And we wanted to get a really good correlation between uh, what are some of the fundamentals of empathy and what are some of the empathic uh, tricks that we can teach in elementary school, that we can teach in middle school, and we can teach in high school. And we just said, okay, an empathic child is not causing harm to others. And how can we train this starting at elementary school, middle school, high school? So that's the emotional component. That a child that is not physically agitated is going to be more attentive and the correlation between chemistry and food, we're not attacking the pharmaceutical industry yet. And sugar in mm-hmm. food, <laughs> yeah, that's too powerful. <laughs> that's a longer, that's a longer mm-hmm. haul. But we just got some simplistic approaches. Yeah, it's entirely doable. I mean, if all you did was, like we said, get rid of the vending machines, maybe you had daily check-ins with your classmates that are that are kind of premised on some standard. Um, you know, psychological methodology. Mm-hmm. You had a five or 10 minute meditation. You had a garden, either a hanging garden or a garden where all the kids would go out and be growing food. And I mean, just simple things like that, mm-hmm. I think could have a profound impact down the line. Um, and I think, you know, we, it would, it would go a long way towards really starting to confront not only, um, these incidences of gun violence in schools, but the broader issue of just malaise and dissatisfaction and depression. I mean, depression is the number Huge. one disability in the world. Huge. And uh, and what's interesting about that is the way that we've traditionally um, treated it and the suffering that that causes versus a conversation around the true causes of what's leading to this so that we can create better systems for people to feel more um, fundamentally plugged into their lives and more purposeful and, uh, and more, um, more fulfilled in what they do um, as a way of eradicating the root cause of what I think is leading to a lot of these emotional disorders. You brought up depression. There's an article just recently in, in major publication that says, People who are depressed use language differently. That's immeasurable. How does depression affect language? How does depression affect word usage? How does depression affect the tone of voice? These are measurables. When you have a measurable, 
you can have a standard. When you have a standard, you can test against that standard. You talked about the system in Japan where you have to jump through all of these you know, tests before you can get a weapon. Imagine if we were to be able to set up standards, if we were to be able to invest the kind of dollars that science is going to have, medical science is going to have to use, regular science is going to have to use. And then all of a sudden what would start happening is this, these dollars would start spilling over into pharmacology. When you have the majority of violent children, all with a history of a particular pharmaceutical drug in their system prescribed by psychiatrists, when you have, when you look around at the kind of reactions that 15-year-old and 17-year-old bodies and minds and emotional bodies are having to the fact that they've been on a particular pharmaceutical ever since they were seven years old or eight years old when they were considered to be you know, hyperactive or whatever, then all of a sudden we're going to have a larger percentage of the population willing to listen to that. The problem that we have right now is that we have just a very small percentage of the population able to listen to these things and a large amount of money broadcasting the polarity. And so what I see is that over time, we're going to have some things that we can address right away. But these larger issues that are causing some of the really systemic problems amongst children and causing them to be extremely violent, because you didn't have this kind of extreme violence except in Billy the Kid when it was 150 years ago, you know? Very few kids were this violent, but now you've got a lot of kids that are this violent. And what we are going to have to do is we're going to have to switch out over time that pendulum and that is going to be very much a nutritional thing, physically, very much an emotional thing, so that you know, breathing and emotions and all of the various ways in which we can address that. But I see us succeeding. I'm actually very, very hopeful. Mm-hmm. I believe that we've just passed the 9-11 for uh, gun violence. You know, plain violence we solved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> plain violence we solved, yes, I hope so. You yeah. know, I certainly Every time so. I get on one, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm pretty confident that we solved yeah. it with the kind of security that I have to pass through. Oh, of course. I mean, the security is insane. I, I you know, uh, I, I've, I'm sort of cynical about that a little bit. Oh, like me I, too. It's but it's just, it's really, you know, sort of for show as much as anything else. If there's a will, there's a way. If somebody really wants to, you know, create harm in that context, uh, I still think it's entirely possible. Um, it just makes it a little bit more difficult. So perhaps they direct that energy elsewhere, but that's neither here nor there. But I think I agree with everything that you said. Um, and we got to wrap this up in a little bit here, but I, I, I kind of want to focus on this depression piece a little mm, bit more. Yes. You know, we've talked about kids and education, um, but for somebody who, you know, depression is such a wide ranging epidemic. It, it touches so many lives directly and indirectly. So if somebody's listening to this, and they suffer or they have suffered or they have periods of time in which they experience this kind of despondency um, and hopelessness. Um, Let's talk about some techniques for thinking about that, of redressing it to sort of leave people with um, something that they can actually practice in their own life. All right, I'd like to speak real practically about this because that's what really is important for 
Um, I mean, you know, we could speak philosophically and existentially, but that would leave people with a huge gap between, you know, oh, he's talked really well, but let's get some practicality here. One of the things that is important in depression is just understanding the word depress. Mm -hmm. When you have anything that you're told you have to depress that, it means that you have to put pressure on it. So when a person, when a person is depressed, it means that the outside is pressing harder than the inside. And the feeling is that they're being squished, that they have no space. And at a certain point, you feel that you have no ability. That's the hopelessness that you just mentioned. And so we have to start really, really, really small to get a wiggle space on the inside of our being. And that early wiggle space is a mental space. The secondary wiggle space is an emotional space. And the tertiary wiggle space is a physical space. But we have to address them in the inverse because there's no way we can create mental space or emotional space because that's not a measurable. Right, so, and you're not gonna think your way out of depression. Exactly. Yeah. Because you, I was going to say, because you thought your way into it. <laughs> that which got you here is not going to get you out, right. right? So getting inside the space, and this is Tai Chi, Qi Gong, Kundalini Yoga, Hatha Yoga, running, swimming, climbing, walking, all of the things in which you actually can feel yourself stretching into your body, not just at the extreme ed edges of your body, but in the inside of your body. So what is the one thing that you can do on the very, very, very inside of your body that you can stretch it? Breathe deep. And so you've got to do things that cause you to breathe deep, which means that you've got to walk up a hill or you've got to get on a treadmill, or you've got to go for a run, or you've got to go for a swim, and or you've got to get on a bicycle or a, a, a stationary bike. You have to do those things that are going to cause you to breathe deep. You can also just stand and begin to use isometrics, you know, if you, where you're actually pressing your body against your body, which will cause your blood to circulate more rapidly. That's going to require more oxygen. That's going to require you to breathe more deeply. So all of these things, whether they're a formal class in Kundalini Yoga or Qigong or Tai Chi or, you know, and this is what you and I are going to get involved in, in the actual courses that we're going to create is how can we get people who are out there in the world who don't have access to all of these, you know, gyms and this and that and all of these classes that are in the major cities, how can they get out of depression? Because as you said earlier, so much of what we do addresses the symptom, but nothing addresses the cause. Depression is being depressed. It's being pressed into the center of your being. And we have to get ourselves out of the center. So we have to do those things which cause us to breathe more deeply. And then once we start doing that, all of a sudden we start to get that wiggle space. Now we start to feel, you know, our emotional body starts to feel a little bit of freedom. 
oh, wow, I just had a good thought. Our mental body starts to have a little bit of freedom. And I mean, I have had people say that, you know, just coming to one yoga class or just coming to one Tai Chi class changed the way they felt the very next day. And we have to get that into momentum. Yeah, momentum is the thing. And I think that that I just want to appreciate for somebody who is suffering from depression, just how difficult taking mm. that first action is. Because if to use your analogy, there's that pressure on you, the impulse or the inertia required to, you know, put on a pair of shoes and walk around the block could be overwhelming because mm -hmm. every every instinct, every impulse is telling you to lie in bed. Mm -hmm. So that can be very difficult. And I think um I think that the only way through that is to find out, find a way to somehow like shut off the brain and take action despite whatever your emotional body is telling you to do, because you really do, and I say this all the time, said it a million times, but like mood follows action. You're not gonna shift your mm. mood. You're not gonna, if you wait around and say, well, I, I get that, I'll wait until I feel like doing it. You're never gonna do it. You've gotta take the action despite whatever mood you're in. And that's how you're gonna shift that emotional state that is making you so uh, feel so trapped. I really felt the part of the audience that you spoke of, if you're so depressed that just getting out of bed is a major operation, a major undertaking. If that is the level of depression that any of you are experiencing, just start with your hands and stretch them. Just start with your feet and stretch them. Because in your hands and in your feet are a tremendous number of nerve endings. And when you stretch the flesh and the tissue around nerve endings, you get a significant impulse. And they've measured it. It's an electrical, it's called a piezoelectric pulse. And that produces a reaction inside of you. And so if you just start stretching your hands, you don't have to move your body, you can stay in bed. Just start stretching your feet and your toes and then start massaging your hands together, one massaging the other or each massaging itself. And then get down there and massage your feet before you put your socks on. There are little ways in which we can begin to improve the sensations so that you have the ability to get out of bed and to make a breakfast or to do something that you haven't done for days. Because we have all had deep moments of depression and some of those of us that are in really accelerated lifestyles have had the greatest amount of depression. None of us made it to where we are in this kind of an acceleration that haven't experienced the other side of it really, really deeply. And so this would probably be a really good topic for mm -hmm. um, extreme fitness or elite fitness and extreme awareness. Yeah, I mean, I think it begins with acknowledging the, the reality of it mm. and the power of it, and then followed by an appreciation and an understanding that ultimately you have to make some decisions for yourself that you have to take per personal responsibility for, that nobody else is gonna solve this for you. 
and those decisions need to be followed by actions. And if the if the only action you can take is stretching your fingers, then that's a great place to start. But ultimately, the idea being that you need to build on these things and you need to create new neural pathways. And those are going to be formed through the activities and through the foods that you eat and through the thought patterns that you decide to engage with. And <clears throat> it's a slow process. It's not like a quick fix or a life hack. But, you know, ultimately, um, there's a way through it. And I think, you know, just to kind of balance this out, um, if you're depressed, it's okay. A lot of people are, you know, yeah. don't beat yourself up for being depressed. Um, well, I always know, embrace, say- Embrace where you are. I always say, if you're depressed, you're paying attention. <laughs> you're paying attention, yeah. Because <laughs> there's a lot to be depressed about. Right. One thing that I want to also share is that anger is also good because the one of the ways to get out of being pressed in on, right, is to get forceful. And I don't mean angry with another person because that's going to have repercussions. I mean, go out for a walk where there are not a lot of other people around and do some yelling. That'll get your blood going. Go to a beach or a mountain or a forest or a field and get angry. Or if nothing else, if you're still lying in bed, just start beating the heck out of your pillow. Because that in and of itself stimulates the liver. The liver stimulates the diaphragm. The diaphragm stimulates the breath. And all of a sudden things start to work. Mm. And it's that, you know, that, that, that calm that comes after the big storm of anger? Mm. Well, That's, catharsis. Mm. Right? Yeah. More to be revealed, to be continued. To be continued. Yeah. Thank you for doing this today. Hey. I am really inspired that this is an idea that is on the table now. It's mm. come off the horizon and it's on the table. With the guru corner, they mean just the guru corner idea? Uh, and and the co-teach. Yeah, I think what a good way to end it is to is to put it out to the people that are listening. If we make this a regular thing, we will make this a regular thing. Perhaps we could make it a little more dynamic by making it um, interactive. And so, if there are subject matters or specific issues or themes that you would like us to explore in the, the next or in future installments of these sessions with Guru Singh, um, send me an email or send Guru Singh an email or share on Facebook or Twitter or wherever, you know, what you would like to, uh, us, to, uh, us to talk about and I'll keep a tally of that. And perhaps we could pick this up next time. Perfect. With some of those. Cool. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to say? Just that uh, what I said earlier, and that is that you have the ability to listen more attentively and more tuned in than anybody. And I've been interviewed by a lot of people than anybody else in my world. And that means a lot because it allows me in... Uh, my communication back to you to be as enthusiastic as you are in your communication I out. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and if you'd like to connect with Guru Singh, the best way to do that, well, the best way is to go to Yoga West, to go to one of his classes. Yeah, right. If you find yourself in Los Angeles, um, pick Guru up. Singh, GuruSingh.com, um, email at uh, info 
at GuruSing, mm-hmm. and your email would work too. Yeah, info at richroll.com too, if you want to hit us up with some suggestions about that. Cool. Yeah. All right, until next time, my friend. All right, All love right. you. Love you too, thanks. Peace. Let's. All right, how'd we do? You guys want more Guru Corner? Let me know. Hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, wherever. Send me a message. Let me know what you thought of today's episode. How often would you like to see Guru Singh appear on this show? A little Guru's Corner sort of segment that we can do periodically. And more importantly, let Guru Singh know. Hit him up on Twitter or Instagram at Guru Singh Yogi. As always, check out the show notes for links and resources related to today's conversation to expand your experience beyond the earbuds. You can find that on the episode page at richroll.com. If you haven't done so already, pick up our brand new cookbook, The Plant Power Way Italia. It's now out. It's amazing. We're so proud of it. 125 delicious plant-based recipes inspired by the rich culinary tradition of Italy. Also, my new revised and updated edition of Finding Ultra is available in all formats. I re-recorded the audiobook. It's a new Kindle, 100 more pages than the original edition, rewrites throughout, updates, the whole nine yards. If you want even more amazing plant-based recipes, perhaps recipes that are not Italian, you should definitely check out our meal planner at meals.richroll.com. We have thousands of recipes, literally thousands, right at your fingertips, all completely customized based on your personal preferences, your allergies, how many you're cooking for, how much time you like to spend in the kitchen, what's your budget, what foods do you like, do you not like, etc. With unlimited grocery lists and even grocery delivery in most U.S. cities with international delivery in certain cities coming very soon. All of this available to you for just $1.90 a week when you sign up for a year. That's pocket change. For more information and to sign up, go to meals.richroll.com or click on Meal Planner on the top menu at richroll.com. If you would like to support my work, just subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy this content. Uh, Share it with a friend. That really helps out a lot. Share it on social media. And you can support my work also on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. I do not do this alone. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, show notes, interstitial music, and so much more. Blake Curtis for videoing today's episode, which you can find on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash richroll. Margot Lubin for editing and graphics and theme music, as always, by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. Peace, plants, namaste. Satnam. Yeah.